Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. I'm very excited for this message for a number of reasons, because it's really a culmination of many years of training that we've done as a church in understanding what the Old Covenant was and what it contains, understanding the differences between the patriarchs and the promises from the Old Covenant itself, which come before the Old Covenant, as Galatians says. And then it, it also is a great point in our study in the book of Hebrews. As we've been going, we've seen that really the fulcrum or the, the point by which the book turns is the ministry and mediation of Jesus Christ. And having demonstrated that Christ is our high priest, the Hebrew writer then delivers a series of rebukes and after those series of rebukes, then begins to explore what the mediation or the priesthood of Jesus Christ means for the church. We saw at the beginning of the book how the Hebrew writer emphasizes that Christ is greater than angels. Christ is the final word from the Father. And being the final word from the Father, he is both the foundation, that is the bedrock upon which the edifice is built, and the capstone, the final top or the pinnacle of this house that God is establishing, which is namely a body of content, a body of doctrine presented to his people. So Christ is not only the foundation doctrine, he also is the pinnacle or apex or uh, culmination or capstone of the doctrine of God, that namely that his people are to be saved by faith. So I hope today to in, in the context of what we've been learning in the book of Hebrews, demolish two things. The first thing is wrong understandings of the nature of the old covenant and the new covenant. That's the first thing I want to demolish, which is a theological problem. And then I want to demolish anything in your heart or mind that is clinging to something that is not the substance of Jesus. That is, what he says about shadows and types here and how they are to be avoided and not reverted back to is vitally important for us. 
as we'll see near the end of the uh, discussion today. The first thing I want to look at today is Christ's excellence in his priesthood. This is a continuation of the last two or three chapters. And in seeing this as a continuation, we, we have to go back and remember what Hebrews 6 and 7 describes uh, Christ as. Then we're going to look at the nature of shadows and types. These are words that we're very familiar with, but I want to explain the nature of them in a little bit more detail. If you remember from last week, we talked about typewriters, how they have a character on an arm, and that arm is engaged, and it strikes a piece of paper or wax or a block, and it leaves an imprint in the, the thing which is struck. That is the nature of a type, and so when we explore the nature of a type, we have to come to the reality that there is a substance behind the type. That is, the letter on the page was created by the letter form. And the letter form comes before and is more true and is the reality behind all the letters which are presented. And that's what the Hebrew writer is getting at when he's talking about the nature of the Old and New Covenants and this distinguishing between the two. We're going to look at the better promises of the New Covenant and finally, the eternal reality of the new covenant. Both of those two components are really our big distinguishing marks of the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant. We're going to explore a little bit how the words old and new are somewhat disingenuous in the way we use them today to what the reality is that he is talking about. It's not a time-based thing, but a type or a kind. There's a difference in kind, not merely just in time between the two covenants. And then finally, the idea of what is vanishing away in God's judgment. I, I'm absolutely fascinated by how much illumination comes to the new covenant scriptures when we begin to understand God's desire to do away with the old covenant system with its sacrifices and temple and how that continues to apply to things in our lives. And you'll, you'll see that in, in greater detail once we get there. So the Hebrew writer in the prior chapters has demonstrated that the priesthood of Jesus Christ was received eternally. That is, Christ did not receive his priesthood through the incarnation in a way that it was not befitting him. That is, Christ was due that priesthood. It was his by right of who he was as person. And it was accomplished, it was received eternally, but it was accomplished in time and space through his death and through his resurrection. And this shows the excellency of Christ's office. One of the ideas I want to help communicate today is the distinction or the identical nature between those who have a job to do and where they do their job. In fact, this is so clearly uh, related. In English, we demonstrate it through the word office, right? We say someone has the office of administration. But where do they do their work? They do their work in an office. Their office position, their role, their ministry, is related to the place in which they do it. That's an important paradigm to see in a minute. Hebrews 8, verse 1. Now, the point in which we are saying is this. I absolutely love it when the Bible says, here's the big point. Because what it helps you do is it helps you check your understanding. But at the same time, it helps you get away from going off you know, on either side of the ditch, right? The roads are, are always sided by two ditches, either to the left or to the right. And so in seeing what the Hebrew writer's main point is, we're helped along. We're, we're able to check our understanding. We're also able to recenter on the purpose. He says the point is that we have a high priest. He says such a high priest relating to that which was seen in the prior chapter, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. His point is that the nature of the priest that we have, namely Christ, is categorically different from the priests who stand year by year, day by day, in the temple. They, they come into the Holy of Holies once a year. They come into the holy place, uh, <clears throat> and they offer a gift. They offer a sacrifice, and that is done over and over again. This is the beginning of the difference he says he is seated, and that session or that seating, 
The, the act of Christ in, seat, in taking a seat to the right hand of the Father means that he has completed his work. That's what we've seen in the last two chapters. How that priesthood was not something he received by merit, but rather something that was due to his person and confirmed in his ministry. And so this one, Jesus Christ, is a minister who is in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The Hebrew writer begins to distinguish those things which are in heaven as greater than those things which are on the earth. And making that distinguishing aspect, he will then connect the role of the covenant to the aspect of the sacrifice. That is, the new covenant contains within it a reality such that it is greater and more, uh, more effective than the old covenant, and so it is incompatible with that old covenant. And in revealing the new covenant, the writer is going to prove that the old covenant system is ready to pass away. In showing the excellency of Christ's priesthood, he also speaks of the location and quality of his service. These two are so important. The idea of office, someone holding the office of you know, secretary of energy or holding the office of the president, we usually use, that's a, a phrase in modern news, uh, news uh, speak. Holding the office and working in an office are so linguistically tied that this is beneficial for us. Christ was not a priest according to the law given through Moses, but through the ordination of his father. We saw this in the prior chapter. That was the prime idea of Hebrews chapter 7, is that Christ was ordained to an eternal priesthood by his father himself, and that ordination is made manifest in time through Christ's coming, and that manifestation ushers in a change in the nature of the law as Hebrews 7 through, uh, 15 through 22 talk about. Hebrews 8, 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on the earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Essentially what he's saying is this, that if Christ remained on the earth and did not continue on his ministry in the heavens, he would not be a priest because he would not be doing priestly things. And so the nature of office and role and action is brought to full force here. See, Christ is not only the true and high priest, what the Hebrew writer is subtly saying is Christ is the only real priest. And all of the rest of the priests are no longer priests at all, but are going to pass away. This is so important because the, the main threat as we've been looking at the book of Hebrews is we have a body of Christians who are under the temptation of Judaizing influences, attempting to pervert them away from soul devotion to Christ, turning away to something other than Christ, namely to seek righteousness by doing the works of the law. Now this is not, although it's emphasized in the Reformed Re, uh, resurrection of the gospel, this is not a reformed or reformation only doctrine. This is vital to the book of Hebrews. Without that understanding, the book of Hebrews makes very little sense because all he's then doing is dis talking about aspects of the old covenant which were nice poetic narrative systems. But there's an actual th spiritual threat that's going on in this book as we've been seeing week in, week in and week out. The threat being turning back to a priesthood or a system of law-keeping by which they hope to justify themselves. The, the, the argument was this, even though you're in Christ as a Gentile, you still need to take on the ceremonial aspects to identify yourselves as the righteous people of God on the earth. The Judaism sought to undo or hide away the fact that Christ has brought an end to the distinction between Jew and Gentile, between man and woman. And so in understanding that this is the real threat, the Hebrew writer is showing that not only does this not make sense from a practical standpoint, it doesn't make sense from a theological standpoint. It doesn't make sense from the core of the faith, which is that Christ is the real sacrifice and real priest. Christ is not an, a priest in the order of Levi. 
he was not able to be in, order, uh, in the order of Levi. As we saw last week, he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And we saw that Melchizedek was, according to Genesis, in the form of the narrative, without beginning of days nor end of life. Now, this is not necessarily saying that Melchizedek lived forever, but what it is saying is that in the text, in the Bible, it doesn't talk about Melchizedek having a birth, and it doesn't talk about Melchizedek having a death. And it then goes on to say, from what we see in the Bible, if we were just reading the story, it looks like he just continues. And so this was being used, as the Hebrew writer says, to tell us about the nature of Christ's priesthood, that Christ himself is eternal without beginning of days nor with end of life. And so Christ not being a priest in the order of, of Levi is so important to see. And I want to give you a threefold framework or a three-aspect based approach to understanding the sacrificial systems in both the Old and New Testaments, Old and New Covenants. Um, but I think that this aspect or this way to, to remember what's going on is a key to understanding your Bible. And it is namely this, that whenever we talk about priesthood, we're talking about three things. The nature of the priesthood itself, that is who the priests are. We have in the Levitical system, Levitical is is for pertaining to Levi, one of the sons of Jacob. Levi, or the Levitical system, those are the men who are descendants from Levi. And those Levites, those people who were descended from Levites, are one tribe among the tribes of Israel that was chosen specifically to mediate the presence of God through the temple system and through the sacrifices. So the first thing is the nature of the priesthood. The second thing is the nature of the sacrifice. What is the gift that's being offered? And then finally, the, th the third aspect is what is the nature of the tabernacle or the temple in which the gift is being offered? The, these three things, priesthood, sacrifice, and temple. And, and you can think of it, if it helps you, the, the who, the priesthood, the what, the thing being sacrificed, and the where. Now the reason when and why are not in full uh, view yet is because that deals with the nature of the covenants, which really is the point of this chapter. But I want to begin to distinguish, as the Hebrew writer says is, it's important to do, I want to distinguish between the nature of the old and new covenant priesthoods because it shows us the glory of Jesus Christ. And in seeing the glory of Jesus Christ, we have courage to leave behind those things that we cling to, which are not the substance. So as the eternal priest, Christ himself is the beginning and the end of his priesthood. In Revelation, we see Jesus as the one who has the name Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And so therefore, Levi's priesthood with its continual generations, one rising up and dying, is incompatible with Christ. Not only is it incompatible, should it remain after Christ, it would be lying about the nature of priesthood. Likewise, in the Levitical sacrifices, a yearly repetition and remembrance of sin is unnecessary in the light of Christ's most excellent, there's a phrase from Bill and Ted's, most excellent, and sufficient atonement. That is to say, Christ's sacrifice, which was made by himself, which was himself, that sacrifice is perfect, and it is effectual, and you can trust in it. And should the Levitical priesthood continue to exist, it would be distracting from the reality. Finally, the last thing is a man-made edifice, a man-made structure or building composed of earthly things could never contain nor reveal the full glory of God. And this is why Christ cannot be a part of Levi. So I want to look at these shadows and types in great detail. I've just given us that threefold system and then just a a few brief statements about each one and the problems with it, which is the reason for why it was set aside. But I want to look at them in great detail. Though Moses' building of the tabernacle was done in the obedience of faith, though that was true and it was right for Moses to do that, it was never intended as a replacement for the heavenly things. This is where the error of dispensationalism begins. Because it states Somehow, Moses' obedience was not sufficient before God. Therefore, he had to change what he was doing. 
That's the, that's the motive or the, the idea behind dispensationalism. That's the reason for its existence, is there's some apparent reason why the old covenant didn't work. And, and I'm using air quotes because I don't agree with that. The old covenant did its function, as we're going to see through the aspect of priest, sacrifice, and temple. The old covenant did its function perfectly. The problem wasn't with the covenant, it was with the members of the covenant. Verse 5, he says, the Hebrew writer says, they, that is the, the, the Levites, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. This proves a number of things. First, that it was Moses who wished to establish a tabernacle being prompted by the Spirit. And then finally, that it was God's commissioning and authoritative command that Moses do it and he do it well. And not only does he do it well, but he does it well based on the rubric of that which was shown to him on the mountain. Now, God was not simply giving Moses blueprints. God, as he revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai, was revealing the nature of the heavenly temple itself. This is why Moses and the elders go up onto the mountain and feast with God. And that's so important to understand, although we can't get into all the implication. So the question is this. This is what I was talking about, where the central error of dispensationalism is that it does not understand the reason for the problem in the Old Covenant. Therefore, because it starts with the wrong question, it necessarily will have a wrong result. The question is this. If the Levitical system was composed of a mere shadow without substance, then why did God command it? This is as you young Christians are beginning to become Bible scholars. Sidebar real quick, you already are a theologian. You may be a bad theologian. You may be a good theologian. You think thoughts about God. Some of them are wrong. Some of them are right, but need further assistance by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. But you are called to understand these things. These are not too difficult for you. End sidebar. Uh, you... Yes, end sidebar. So, so why did God command this? And the question is very, very important to get right. The reason God commanded it is that as Paul tells us in Galatians that the law, and by the law he means everything in the Pentateuch and beyond, the law was given that it would be a tutor to lead us to Christ. That is, it would instruct us of our need and it would prepare us spiritually, liturgically, theologically, for the unveiling of Christ's priesthood. And by priesthood, I'm including not just what he does in heaven, but his sacrifice and his death, resurrection, ascension, and glorification. So though the particulars are manifold, though there are hundreds, if not thousands, of little details in the law which show forth Christ, all of them have the exact same purpose and aim, which is to demonstrate our need for an eternal priest, who offers a true spotless sacrifice in the heavenly temple. That threefold pattern, priest, sacrifice, temple. And so first, our need is seen through the mortality of the priests themselves. I want you to consider what's going on in the Levitical system. God tells Moses to speak to the sons of Levi, first to Aaron and his sons, as well as all those who would come after them. And he ordains them and sets them aside for a particular job or function in the life of Israel. And this job, this commissioning, this taking hold of Levi, for God said, Levi is mine, that taking hold, God never undoes that. And so the Levites are a tribe that is intimately connected with, for their entire destiny, with the offerings of the temple. And the mortality of those Levites, the actual fact that they live and die, speaks to our need for Christ. Why does it speak? It's because each son of Levi is born into a task. If, you know, in, in times past, we all took our father's role and our father's job. That, that comes from a biblical place. It comes from a biblical tradition. If you were the son of a carpenter, you became a carpenter. This is what's going on in the Levites. Every single Levite is born having a job to do, and every single Levite who dies, dies having left it uncompleted. I want you to understand that very clearly. The very fact that Levites are raised to life, they're, they're given birth, 
to, to Levites, and, and they die. That very fact that they continually persist in being called to the ordination of the priesthood means that we need a final eternal priest. None of the sons of Levi will live forever nor offer a perfect sacrifice. And from the very beginning, even if the mortality was not a problem, let's say God looked over that, even if that wasn't a problem, then the morality of the Levites was certainly a problem. The reason why is their very federal head, that is the first guy, not the father, not Levi himself, but Aaron, the very first priest from the beginning of the priesthood, corrupts it entirely. What is Aaron's first action as a priest? His first action as a priest is to establish golden calves, which he then proclaims to be Yahweh. He, he presents this golden calf, and he, he shows it to the people of Israel, and he says, Behold, the gods who delivered you for, the God who delivered you from Egypt. Aaron himself was an idolater. Not only was he an idol worshiper, he was an idol maker. And if the federal head be perverted from the very beginning of the priesthood, the rest of the priesthood is surely doomed. Even if Aaron would have lived forever, he would have lived forever in a corrupted state. And this is not the only sin of Aaron, although it's the only sin we'll look at. In Exodus 32, you can read all about it. But Aaron, Aaron isn't the bad egg. He's not the worst egg, believe it or not. In fact, actually, as you become a student of the Old Covenant Scriptures, it becomes a question that you should ask yourself, was there ever any righteous priesthood? Were there even one or two generations in a row that were not perverted. I have yet to find one, and I've traced out all of them. Maybe in the time of David, there was one or two generations where the priesthood was not totally perverted. But each generation that comes after Aaron compounds the sin of his parents and his fathers. In Exodus 32, we see Aaron's sin. In Leviticus 10, we see Nadab and Abihu, who are the sons of Aaron, who offer up an unsolicited sacrifice, doing things their own way. In number 16, we see the rebellion of Korah, who is a Levite, who uh, creates a faction and he draws together other Levites to create their own rivalrous priesthood, rebelling against Aaron's authority, who, by the way, was rebelling against Moses' authority. And what happens to the sons of Korah? They're swallowed up by the earth. Woe is us if we trust in a priesthood that is susceptible to that type of moral failing. And it doesn't stop with just Korah. In Judges 17, we see this guy named Micah, not the Micah who's a prophet, but just a, a man, I think he's a Benjamite, who basically pays bribes to a Levite to come and be his special priest, worshiping before this item of silver that he made. I mean, at least Aaron had something made out of gold. If you're going to choose one, just go with the better metal. Right after this, we see a Levite who comes to the, the men of Gibeah, and he stays the night there. Now, this woman had been acting as a prostitute. He goes and gets her and brings, them, brings uh, her back to himself. But on the way home, the men of Gibeah look like the men of Sodom. I don't know if you've ever heard this story, uh, but it's absolutely, definitely, I would not include this in your family worship times just yet. It's absolutely terrifying because the men of Gibeah are doing the exact same thing as the men of Sodom. And what does the Levite do? The Levite throws his concubine out, and the man who is his host throws his daughter out, and the men of the town rape them all night until they're dead. Now that is wickedness in the priesthood. That is absolute wickedness in the priesthood. It gets worse. Samuel 1 through 5 shows us that as Samuel's rising up, we see the sons of Eli, who are named Hophni and Phinehas, not the good Phinehas, the bad Phinehas. There's two Phineases in the Bible. Um, Hophni and Phinehas are committing not only temple sacrifice violations, that is, they're stealing from the things which are being offered by the people and perverting the worship of Yahweh, but they are actually sleeping with temple prostitutes that they had kind of established. So they, they were not only perverting the priesthood, they were acting like pimps. And, and they were establishing a prostitution in the front of the temple. And this gets extremely worse. If you ever want to have a good day, I love people who, you know, just 
say the Bible is just really encouraging. I would love to make a dev- <laughs> I would love to make a devotional, and it would just be it would just be made of all of the worst places in the Bible that are the the most depressing. And and what what do I mean by that? Okay, I I normally don't do this. I already said that I don't do it normally, but now it looks like I do it normally. Um, <clears throat> I want to see a hand, a, a raise of hands, if you will, be so kind to tell. Do you know what happens in Ezekiel eight? Okay, you need to read your Bibles. Um, in Ezekiel eight, which you should should know. Ezekiel, who has just seen a vision of the glory of the Lord in Ezekiel 1, where he sees the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple, he beholds the pre-incarnate Christ as a man who is seated on the throne, surrounded by cherubim, who have this wonderful wheel in a wheel thing. Perhaps you remember that from your Sunday. Your Sunday school class may have talked about Ezekiel 1. They definitely didn't talk about Ezekiel 8. God rips Ezekiel from that place, drags him away, picking him up by his hair, And he drags him to the temple in Jerusalem. And then through a series of spiritual prophetic revelations by the Spirit of God, God shows Ezekiel what's happening in the temple. And what is happening in the temple is a number of things, uh, a number of things which are terrible. First of all, they've set up an idol in in the holy place. They've set up an idol where the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be, and they've actually put that idol into the very center of the temple. And then after that, God shows them another thing that they have done. They have actually taken all the walls, which were overlaid with gold, if you remember. They were supposed to be pomegranates and the trees, representing the abundance that God had given the people in the Promised Land. They had destroyed those and instead inscribed images of every creeping thing on the earth and every beast of the field. This makes sense if you then go read Romans 1. They're idolaters. They're worshiping animals in the center of the holy place. And then further than that, Ezekiel then goes and sees what's happening at the north gate between the porch and the altar. And uh, one of the times where the prophets of God call the people back to remembrance, they say, it's time to weep between the porch and the altar, for we've forsaken Yahweh. But here Ezekiel sees that the women of Jerusalem are weeping between the porch and the altar for one of these gods named Tammuz. And this god named Tammuz was a Babylonian god that, they, that the Babylonians would mourn uh, for his every year, his death, entrance into the underworld, and restoration. And so they were mourning for the death of their god and their mythological god instead of mourning over the fact of their own sin. And they were doing this right on the steps of the temple. And so in verse 17, he said, Yahweh says, by the spirit of God to Ezekiel, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit these abominations that they commit here and that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? What Yahweh is saying to Ezekiel is, these are just the leaves of the tree. This type of idolatry has become injustice and iniquity throughout the whole land, such that the entire land is filled with violence. Now, this is where I'm talking about how the Bible is not very encouraging often. Then the next thing that happens in Ezekiel 9 is he sends angels of God to go through Jerusalem and slay all the idolaters. Put that on one of those little morning devotionals. It won't work. The reason why I bring these up is not to revel in what might be the dark parts of the scripture, but I want to show you what sin is. That's the reason the priesthood exists. The reason the priesthood exists is that by its negative example, God would demonstrate our need for a true, righteous, sinless priest. And then finally, the final sin of the priests is that they murder Christ himself. This was an official approved murder which took place by the high priest and the 70 elders in the temple itself. So, secondly, the sacrifices which were offered were animals of earth, and they cannot atone for sin. So not only is the priesthood corrupt, the animals themselves are are not at all putting off sin in a way that's sufficient. It is merely putting it off for another year. Not only do the sacrifices not atone, not only do they not accomplish what sometimes we think that they should accomplish, not only do they not atone, they actually bring forth a reminder before Yahweh's presence himself 
of the need for the atonement. That is, they are a reminder of sin. It's like God established a yellow, bright highlighter post-it note saying these people need atonement. That's what the, the atonement itself every year is. Just as the covering of Adam and Eve was made by the death of a lamb, so also the death of the animals calls to mind the guilt of the people. Rather than actually dealing with the problem of sin, it actually calls to mind the, promise, the problem of sin. And this is evidenced in the Jews, their tradition of Yom Kippur. Now today, when, when we have a modern Judaism that's like eight generations different than the uh, original form of Second Temple Judaism, the day of Yom Kippur is now a celebratory day. But originally it was a day of mourning and fasting because it was the national day of remembering all the sins you've committed the last year. We have New Year's and we think all the great things we're, not, we're going to do uh, in the upcoming year. They had a day in their calendar by God's design to remind them of all the terrible things that they've done in the prior year. Finally, our need is seen in the weakness of both the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle, according to the Bible, narratively speaking, just simply fades away and is forgotten. If you search your Bibles, you'll never find a place where it describes what happened to the tabernacle, nor even the ark itself. But actually, it's just the case that the tabernacle was kind of forgotten. It, it fell into such neglect that they lost it. This, this makes sense when you get to... Uh, Josiah, where Josiah finds a copy of the Bible in the temple and they, they had lost it. I want you to think about that. The copy of the Bible that was on the earth was lost. Uh, and so similar, similarly, just as the temple fades away from the narrative, that is, they, they misplace it or it, it just falls out of favor. It just gets lost. It's not preserved. Similarly, the temple itself is destroyed by the judgment of the Babylonians brought on by the sins of the people. We don't have a priesthood who will live forever. We don't have sacrifices which will actually atone, but rather remind God of our sins. And finally, the temples that we have in the Old Covenant are not permanent. They will fade away or they are susceptible to our own destruction through our neglect and sin. So how can the sons of Levi ever enter if the tabernacle or temple is missing or destroyed? Clearly, the Old Covenant was not sufficient and so, in bringing about a new priesthood, Christ institutes a change in the priesthood and in the mediation of the law. God himself created these things to be reminders and demonstrations. You need atonement. You need someone who can atone. And you need a place in which atonement would actually be received. Hebrews 8, verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. The new covenant is greater because it offers greater promises. It is not greater because of some deficiency in God's design of the old covenant. The old covenant was sufficient in its goal and not sufficient because it did not deal with the problem of the people. That is what the new covenant resolves. These promises, the promises which are greater in the new covenant, concern our two great and very importantly deep problems. Namely the first, which is the law of God being internalized on our minds and on our hearts and satisfying the problem of sin, guilt, and the need for atonement. Those two problems are completely satisfied. They're resolved. They're, there's a solution in the new covenant. There was not a solution in the old covenant. And this is exactly what God is doing by demonstrating the fact that the Israelites would stray generation after generation. He now brings about a covenant in which they will no longer stray. Not only is the new covenant greater in the scope and application, but also it is greater because it is permanent. When God in verse 12 says, I will remember their sins no more, he means that totally. We saw that last week, how Jesus Christ's intercessory role before God is not continually asking the Father to re-forgive you or to forgive you now that you've done another sin, but rather that he doesn't bring it up at all. And Christ's mediatorial office is simply the ushering of blessing, grace, the anointing of the Spirit, wisdom, understanding of scriptures, the zeal to do good works, etc., we could never list them all. Those are the chief focus of Christ. He's not standing there before the Father and trying to kind of beg the Father into finally receiving the sacrifice and making it effectual for you. That has been done. 
And in not remembering their sins any longer, he doesn't remember the sins which are still yet to be committed by you and by me. But rather, he is ushered in a new covenant reality by which he is pouring out blessing. The new covenant was a promise reality through Jeremiah. That is, Yahweh spoke at the time of Jeremiah's uh, uh, prophethood, uh, prophet ministry, but it exists existed before Jeremiah's day. This is very important to see. Moses makes a copy of something that's real. When you put something in a copier, there's nothing that comes out unless there's an image to be copied, right? And so Moses is shown something in the heavenly place, and that copy is then made and presented and revealed. And here's the important point. Shadows are created by substance, right? If you ever have a dog, perhaps you have done this trick where you have a flashlight and then you do something with your hand. Some dogs, my, a few years ago I had a dog <clears throat> and she was absolutely terrified by shadows. It was amazing. And, but the point is that she was terrified by something without substance. She had no reason to fear the shadow. She didn't quite understand, but the point is that shadows are shadowed forth from something. And when the the Bible speaks of Moses making something that was a shadow and a copy, it means that the greater reality is more real. Today, as people who have been infected by the Enlightenment, we think that, you know, the next life will be this mysterious, wafty, ethereal, spiritual, you know, Philadelphia cream cheese, heaven commercial uh, kind of existence But as C.S. Lewis points out, rightly so, drawing from inspiration from Hebrews 8, the next life will be more concrete and more real. The heavenly things were there before the earthly things. And so the things of earth are a mere shadow or a copy. What's what's accepted in a court of law? The, The original or the copy? The original. And so we understand that the things of the old covenant being done in a priesthood that was concrete or or physical, were actually less great than the temple, the sacrifice, and the offering done by Christ. By distinguishing between old and new, the writer does not simply mean a difference in time. This is very important to see, and this gets to what Jeremiah was speaking about. The old covenant was a shadow, the new covenant is substance. The difference is not in time alone, although there is a difference in time. The difference is also in nature, effectiveness, and permanence. Though the new covenant is revealed fully in time through the coming of the Messiah, it was always in effect before and even during the time of the administration of the old covenant. See, what we do is we, we don't know our Bibles well enough, and so we take everything which we presume to be under the law, and we categorize everything which comes before Christ as under the law. But as Galatians points out, and Hebrews will get to in showing the faith of the patriarchs, the law came hundreds of years after God began to interact with the patriarchs. And so the question is this, is Abraham a member of the old covenant, which didn't come about for 430 more years, or, I'm showing my cards, or is Abraham a member of the new and eternal covenant? And this has to be positively affirmed. As I said, you're a theologian. Now that you have that theologian card, you're now able to read theological works. I'm going to read from a book by John Calvin uh, called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And it's a very simple quote, which I will kind of telescope for you. All, that is all people, whom from the beginning of the world, God adopted as his peculiar people, all of those who were in the church, if you will, were taken into covenant with him on the same conditions and under the same bond of doctrine as ourselves. I want you to understand what he's saying. But as it is of no small importance to establish this point, I I will add here by way of appendix and will show since the fathers were partakers with us in the same inheritance and hope for a common salvation through the grace of the same mediator, how far their condition is in respect different from our own. What he's saying is 
all the fathers, all the patriarchs had the exact same hope that you or I do, that there would be one who would sufficiently fulfill all the promises made by Yahweh. And that one is the mediator for their salvation and for our salvation. It was never the sons of Levi who were affecting anything for salvation. Point two under this chapter, the covenant made with all the fathers is so far from differing from ours in reality and substance that it is altogether one and the same. Still the administration differs. What he's saying is the administration of the covenants, the the visual or the, the physical representation of the covenant is different, though the substance was always there and in full force. It is vital to understand this because Yahweh promises to make a covenant with those who are members of the eternal, true, spiritual Israel. I want you to see this because the Hebrew writer is about to quote Jeremiah saying that the eternal covenant or the new covenant is made with the house of Israel. And if that's the case, and we believe the house of Israel refers to some sort of nation state of the old covenant system and administration, then neither you nor I as Gentiles or former Gentiles, would ever have been a part. I want you to look at this clearly. For he finds fault with them, that is the covenant, when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So what is, what is the Hebrew writer saying that Jeremiah is saying? That God, in establishing the new covenant or revealing it or making it manifest, is revealing it to those who are members of Israel the true spiritual Israel and Judah, not simply the divided kingdoms at the time that Jeremiah was prophesying. Because if that were the case, you and I would still not be members of that covenant. Having shown the greater promises of the new covenant, the writer prophesies that the evidence of all that's been asserted, that that Christ's priesthood is greater, that his sacrifice is greater, that the eternal temple is what matters, not the earthly temple. Having demonstrated all that and asserted all that, the Hebrew writer then gives us one very brief comment providing the evidence for that which was just asserted and demonstrated. Namely this, he says that the proof of the new covenant, the sufficiency of the new covenant, And the sufficiency of Christ's priesthood is the passing away of the old system. Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, most of the time when we read these future forward statements in the New Testament, we're often tempted to project them beyond our day, which is called the futurist interpretation. The reason it's important to understand that is because you've got to look at the problem of what's going on. What he's saying is the proof that Christ's priesthood is sufficient is that the old is going to be set aside. And he says in speaking of a new covenant, he kind of deprecates the old or he, he, he marks it as ready to be tossed out. And then what the Hebrew writer is saying is that it is ready to vanish away. It's already growing old at his time. It has all the stress marks and fractures and decay and tarnish that would be on anything worthy of throwing in the trash. And then he says, it's ready to vanish away. What is he talking about? He's talking about this, that namely the temple system, all of its buildings, priests, and things to be sacrificed were destroyed during the final siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. God had set up through the Romans, a time of judgment on the city of Jerusalem, which, as as you read your Bible and see in the book of Revelation, is a tribulation of three and a half years. And that tribulation, which takes place, is not something in the future, as many of us are kind of inundated with now, but it's a tribulation that took place on Jerusalem. And so not only the Hebrew writer's prophecy, but the very words of Christ himself were fulfilled to the highest degree. He said, the, the disciples, they say to Christ, look at all these wonderful buildings. And he says, do you see these wonderful buildings? I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on top of another. And that was literally and absolutely fulfilled. And since that time, no temple, nor priesthood, nor sacrifices have ever arisen. Why is it the case? Because God said it was over. And in understanding that, we now have the key to the New Testament. Nevertheless, 
<clears throat> what the Hebrew writer is doing, how, how does this all relate to what we've been talking about in the book of Hebrews? The Hebrew writer is warning the people of apostasy away from Christ, away from turning, uh, turning away from what they have heard the gospel to be, that is, Jesus Christ is a sacrifice for sinners, and as a sinner, I can receive him and be washed anew and be cleansed and have peace with God, that they were going to apostatize from that body of doctrine and revert back to the weak and elemental things of the earth, namely the observance of days, the eating or not eating of certain foods, the, uh, the obedience of certain customs and laws as if that would set them right before God. And so the Hebrew writer in showing that not only does that not make sense because Christ is sufficient, he also says that it's passing away. And I don't know about you, you can't grab a shadow. If you've ever seen the movie Peter Pan, you may remember this from Peter Pan trying to catch his shadow. Why does it not work? Now, it finally works at the end, but that's not my point. The point is that you can't touch a shadow you can't grasp a shadow. As soon as you try to touch a shadow, the shadow is touching you, right? Because the, the light which is demonstrating the shadow is, is a negative of the shadow. And as soon as you go to, to try to acquire the shadow or hold on to the shadow, it slips through your fingers. This is what he's saying, is if the Hebrew Christians, the ones he's writing to, if they should revert back to the old system, then they will not only find it to fade away, then they themselves might be destroyed with it. If we think that only the temple is passing away, then we have not heard the heart of the writer, nor the spirit of God. The spiritual import of what he is saying is mightily important. The purpose is to warn them from apostasy, from reverting back to shadows, and instead of looking to Christ. And my point is this, you and I, we're not tempted to revert back to second temple Judaism. I have never desired to give money to the current effort on the earth, they have a GoFundMe page, to start a new breed of red heifers, which would be pure enough to actually sacrifice again. Now, that right there is, is an utter rank abomination and, and heresy and apostasy, should they have known anything of God. But there are actually some Christians who have bought into this doctrine of the primacy of, of messianic culture. And you, every once in a while you hear uh, some Christians, especially with what's called messianic Judaism, kind of begin to revert back to this, well, we really need to adopt Hebrew culture and learn Hebrew language. Now, if you're doing it for an academic purpose, I suppose it's okay. But if you're seeking to justify yourself to get back to the roots of your Christianity, then you, you already are beginning to go into this. I know of no one in our church who is tempted to do this. If you are, you should talk to me. The point is that you and I are mostly not tempted to revert back to Second Temple Judaism. And if you hear the writer's warnings of trying to grasp at shadows and you think to yourself, I'm fine, then you have not heard the intention of the Spirit of God. The question you should be asking yourself is which shadows are you clinging to? Today, right now, what shadows are you clinging to? And this is my point. Everything which you trust in except for Christ will absolutely and totally fade away. It absolutely and totally will fade away. And just as a shadow cannot be grasped by you, the things which you attempt to hold on to, as Princess Leia says in Star Wars, she says, the more, the tighter you tighten your grip, the more star systems slip through your fingers. It's the most spiritual moment in Star Wars, probably. Because it's not very apparent that it's spiritual. Those things which you attempt to hold on to cannot be held. They will fade away. They will disintegrate like sand in your hand falls out as you, as you grip it tighter. It will absolutely and totally fail you in the day that you trust in it. So my questions to you are these. Do you pride yourself on your physique or career? Some of you are in very good shape. Some of you are in bad shape. I myself am kind of on the bad side of the shape question. I'm in a more round shape than another shape. But even if I were in great shape, if I prided myself on that, then it would absolutely fail in the day that I'm seeking to think good about myself. You will eventually die. You will grow old, you will forget people's names, your hair will fall out, you will die. 
If you don't die sooner than that, that's how you'll probably eventually die. Your physique will not last forever. I'm already at the age, and so are many of you, where the greatest muscle mass that you have ever had is behind you. And that's a genetic and age thing, not your level of shape or your zeal to work out. You are a human being, and your physique will fail you. Likewise, your career will fail you. I've left a number of companies over time, and one of the things I've discovered is you have about three months in which you still know the majority of the people. This, is, this happens quicker for a larger company. But perhaps if you've got a few small companies, maybe this doesn't happen as much. But eventually, after a year or two, enough people have left and been replaced or forgotten you that if you showed up at the front door, they'd say, may I help you? They would have no idea who you are. If you are trusting in your career to provide some sort of self-worth that is the bedrock of your assurance before God, or even how you think about yourself, it will ultimately fail. Your company will fold or it'll be set aside. The things you own will break down. This is so true. People who own houses, uh, tell me uh, if this is not true. The things you own will break down. The property that you have and the money that you have. If it doesn't break down so as to be thrown away, it will be given to someone else. Remember, you will die. And in dying, all of your money will go either to your spouse or if you don't provide a will to the government. So please write your wills. The point is that if you trust in your career or your physique or your money or the things you have or your societal role or how much volunteerism you do, it will ultimately totally fail. Do you hope to justify yourself before God based on your good deeds? That's a very common one in the New Testament that we see over and over again, mostly because at the time of the first century church, they were mostly poor But at the time that we live, we have a number of Christians who have enough wealth, enough vocational skill that they're able to uh, volunteer a lot. And so my question to you is, do you pride yourself on the excellence of your volunteerism? Maybe you don't pride yourself on the fact that you volunteer, but from time to time you rest on the fact that not only do I volunteer, but I do a good job of it. Do you do this? If you do this, you should know that even if your good works are done with the right motive, you cannot save the world. You absolutely cannot save the world. No matter how many people you help, there will always be one more. Now, we've talked about the book of Hebrews as a very depressing book in a number of ways. And the reason it's a grace from God to have the word of God cut to the heart like this is it because it exposes those things which we hold to that are not Christ. I'm reminded of a movie called Schindler's List. And if you have not seen this movie, by the grace of God, I would, I would encourage you to see that movie. The point is, at the last aspect of the movie, there's a man, uh, the, the whole point of the movie is that there's this man named Os- Oscar Schindler who has been smuggling out Jews from Nazi Germany Uh, and he was involved with some of the concentration camps. I can't tell you the whole story. But at the end of the movie, this man who had risked life and limb, who was part of the Nazi complex, but was working within the system to save as many as he could, and he would smuggle them out by selling various things, he's presented with a large group of people, 1,100 Jews to be precise. And he sees this large group of people, and they're there to thank him, and to show him the visual and real testimony in the number of lives that he has saved. And the the problem with, with the movie, the reason it shows that good works can never be enough, even if you're employed in serving your fellow man, is the response that Schindler has. He looks at his car that's over in the scene, and he says, this could have bought 10 people if I only would have sold the car. And he looks at the gold pendant that's on his jacket, and he says, this is gold. This could have bought two people. Now, I would encourage you to understand the full threat and force of what that movie's trying to say. Now, I don't know if that's the original intention of whoever wrote the movie, but clearly the Spirit of God through that movie has, at least for me and for other people who I've discussed it with, shown that even if you spent your entire life serving your fellow man, it could never be enough to save the world. 
If you are not trusting in Christ as your Messiah, seeking to be your own, then you are not trusting in Christ at all. And trusting in our good works is a form of trusting in ourselves as our Messiah. So what's the remedy? If you find yourself in this condition, if you find yourself as one who is trusting in things which are shadow and not substance, then the reality is this, that shadows only pass away when light comes close enough to envelop the thing which is shadowed. And those shadows, which are perhaps what you're trusting in, can only be destroyed by fixing your gaze on Christ and pursuing him. This is the only way in which I know it is able to divorce ourselves from forever those things which we have in the past idolized. I want to read Revelation 1.16 and then we'll close. <clears throat> this is John the Revelator seeing <clears throat> Christ in his glorious state in the heavenlies. He says that in Christ's right hand he held seven stars and from his mouth came a two-edged sword and his face was like the, shun, the sun shining in full strength. God, we pray that you would give to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. We pray that you would deliver us, Lord, from apathy concerning your word, and we would do the hard work that it is to wrestle with your scriptures, to get understanding from them. We thank you that you promise your spirit to provide illumination for us. We ask you that you would continue to raise us up to maturity, that you would show us Lord, the very things that we have been tempted to revert back to or cling to, whether it be a routine thing or just a casual, occasional thing. I pray that you would show us the deep-rooted, invisible pride that is in our hearts. I also ask, Lord, that you would reveal to us all attempts to not rest in the gospel and to seek to substitute Christ with our own actions, or some other thing that provides validation. I pray that you would usher our church into great liberty that comes from trusting you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.